Hello and welcome to a new Rethink Energy podcast with me, Peter White, our intrepid team of Harry Morgan, uh, Andrew Swantanar and Simon Thompson. Uh, what do we think of the issue? Well, I just think there's so much going on. Um, we've got hydrogen on one side, we've got all the wind, we've got this new technology I've never heard of before in Russia, heterojunction solar technology. I think that was a case of, um, of Andres uh, discovering uh, and getting to grips with the, the, where the technology market in solar is right now. Is, it, is that right, Andres? Well, yeah, I just saw this thing, heterojunction, which I've been seeing for a while every now and then, and I felt I had to do an article about it. It's your normal crystalline silicon, but it's got two thin film amorphous layers on either side. That part is a bit more difficult to do, and the production lines aren't compatible. That's how I'd describe it as different. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's those kind of things. Because I was uh, reading something earlier in the week about solar farms and wind farms and so on that were put up 10 years ago and are just about to expire, you know, because the inverter doesn't last 10 years. A lot of the equipment is, is only good for 10 years. So what do you do? Do you, you know, scrap it all? Do you replace it? Do you get upgrade? you know, with, with better equipment. As I concentrate on the American utilities quite a lot recently, and I'm always surprised at how old some of their um, um, installations are. You know, 1950s, 1960s and 1970s is when a lot of coal plants and nuclear plants were built. Now, nuclear plants can be refurbished and, and re uh, a check for security and, and they can go on for 50 years there's nothing wrong with that um, but some of uh, but the coal plants it must be terrible terribly uh, polluting after 60 or 70 years oh, yeah uh, and in fact there's a lot of internal politics going on in uh, between the states and uh, and the the isos and FERC and uh, the utilities in the um People hand around these, especially something that's in the in in a region which is served by two different uh, grids. They hand around these um, sort of tainted old coal coal um, plants and say, "Well, yeah, they, these got to be um, fitted with scrubbers. This has got to be cleaned. This has got to be changed. This has got to, some of this ash has got to be removed." And and they. Um, and they kind of go, oh, that's a cost associated with that. I'll sell the plant to someone else who's got a bit more money. And uh, and in fact, one of the ones uh, stories we did uh, in the issue is where Vistra was closing down a lot of old plants and claiming it was because they're green. It was because they were getting to the stage where they either had to spend money uh, cleaning them or closing them down. Um, what else was in, in the issue? Um... So we've got a write-up of, of the... A hydrogen report, uh, kind of a summary in there. I mean, that was interesting that we've had people contact us and say hydrogen, hydrogen, it's never going to happen. Didn't happen 20 years ago. Well, give me the reasons why. You know, I've been in this industry forever. And then uh, Goldman Sachs comes out with a report um, that's, that's actually buried in our worth noting section, saying that hydrogen is going to become a uh, 12 trillion industry by 2050. Um, I mean, you, if you heard anybody saying that any industry was going to become a 12 trillion dollar 
industry by by 2050. You'd you think they they were uh, insane, but of course um, that's exactly what's going to happen um, because it's replacing um, a, a number of industries. One of them, partly partly petro petroleum, obviously EVs will and batteries will replace a lot of that. Uh, but at the top end, we see it as um, replacing petroleum. But then you kind of, it's replacing natural gas in heating people's homes. And maybe one day, I can't imagine us cooking on it, but it, it, <laughs> that's possible. Um, uh, but the, um, but all people say is it's dangerous. Mm, and you yeah. go, well, based on what? And they go, oh, the Hindenburg. Mm. And you go, well, that was 1937. Uh, everything was dangerous in 1937. You know, a motor car was dangerous, and nowadays nobody reports the fact a, a motor car's um, gasoline tank blows up um, because yeah. it's so commonplace. But we're still remembering an explosion from 1937. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's absolutely nuts. I think the, the fact that Elon Musk puts um, safety sort of the centre of everything he does at Tesla just highlights how. Um, batteries even themselves are dangerous. I mean, if batteries were, if lithium-ion batteries were sort of becoming commonplace in 1937, we'd have seen explosions like we saw in Hindenburg. I think it's unbelievable. We've seen them. We've seen them in, in uh, Arizona last year. Mm. You know, that's exactly the, the size of the explosion. I'm sure it was bigger than the Hindenburg uh, in terms of the uh, electrical output. But we gloss over that and move on because people have spent $100 billion building factories for it. Yeah, and I think you just sort of have to follow the, follow the money, really. I mean, what was what was it this week? There was something like six billion dollars invested in hydrogen-powered tugboats in Central Europe. I mean, that's what you imagine, would imagine to be quite a small industry, but that's a huge sum of money going in for one project. Um, so the fact that I mean, it's it, it's probably going to be north of this sort of twelve trillion dollar figure that Goldman Sachs are talking about. It's yeah, it's it's huge. It starts now. Yeah, I mean, and, and to a certain extent, you know, the um, the twelve trillion dollar, uh, you can see that Goldman is a financial organisation, and that it will be thinking in terms of how much money needs to be invested, and then how much, what the kind of yield that will be. So that how they've measured it is anybody's guess. It, I mean, it won't be sales of hydrogen uh, alone. It would include people's market cap and the total investment in the industry, and it will include uh, a lot of, of uh, include the cost of hydrogen, but also the cost of the equipment to make the hydrogen uh, multi-layered. But certainly, um, if we see it replacing even even 30% of transport fuel, then, then yeah, it is going to do that kind of number. Yeah, and I mean, this is what Goldman Sachs have pointed to as well, is it will come across things like the massive rise in electricity, I mean, Goldman Sachs pointed that it could actually double electricity demand across the globe. So companies like utilities are going to be really um, massive beneficiaries of it. Um, they've got infrastructure companies that actually make the pipelines. Um, you've got the turbine operators. Um, so yeah, it's opportunities across the board. And there are opportunities for companies as well that have probably been a bit lost to sort of how they can change through the energy transition. Um, so, so technically, it, it's not that difficult to design your gas turbine that can, so that it can burn either natural gas or hydrogen. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a chemical engineer, but I know that it 
it has been done, and I know that people are working on it now. We used to talk um, about swing machines uh, uh, back in the IT days, one that could run with one operating system and then run with another. And that, uh, and uh, yeah, there'll be some extra design cost in it, but we've already heard announcements of installations that are on order for that. Now, it may cost a, an extra 10% to build that turbine, and it, they may have to make dramatic changes when they do the transition. But what a way of saving all your investment in uh, in, in gas turbines. If you have to pay an extra 10% just to make sure it can burn the hydrogen, and then don't worry about what it burns. Yeah, I think the capital investment it, it will take to actually develop one of these turbines means that it probably will be one of the existing players in the industry. So be that sort of Siemens, be that um, General Electric. But the first one to do it will take a massive lead. I mean, as soon as they're commercially available, the orders will just flood in for that turbine. I mean, we've well, seen it with well, I think that's already happening. Uh, you know, I think if you actually look at the GE product line, you'll find that there. And I think you'll find it, you know, that people like Siemens have, have got a product for this. But I, I do believe it will increase the capital cost of, of building one of these. And that other people who, who, who do a dedicated, at a point in time, they say, this only burns hydrogen. They will be able to do it cheaper and make it more efficient and um, the idea of of pandering to people's kind of fossil fuel obsession and that oh don't worry later you can switch this to hydrogen has a cost and it, it may not make one of the incumbents the market leader eventually it may be a specialist that, that is yet to be born that, that ends up as the market leader because it because they just come with a pure design so, so Harry, I was uh, reading the, the the wind quarterly review, and, and in line with solar, it's seven percent up. So it's it's up during you know despite COVID. But I'm looking down the the table of country by country, and it's the the number of wind installations in like European countries is down, but it, it's th this rise seems to have come from from Asia or Australia and Asia? Yeah, so it's been a funny quarter for wind um, for, for, I mean, for obvious reasons. I think probably the only one that's really not stood out as particularly unusual is China, probably because it's um, very much forced it's coming back open pretty early. The US has done pretty much the same, and actually still trying to rush ahead of um, this production tax credit deadline they've got at the end of the year. Um, Australia, their uptake was- that's incredible. 1200% change. But this 1.05 gigawatts is it's just three projects. Um, oh, three I see. Okay. Projects in Victoria that have all been installed this quarter. Um, mm. So while it lo looks really promising, looks like maybe Australia is going to suddenly take off in yeah. the wind sector, um, it still has a lot to do in terms of developing its mm. um, distribution network for electricity. Yeah, you mentioned Europe. Europe um, literally just has reflected how countries have done in terms of COVID-19. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Germany and Sweden, which um, for different reasons haven't had to shut down their economy for too long, their installations have stayed pretty much the same as they were last mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. But if you look at uh, France, Spain, Italy, the UK, um, where lockdowns have been uh, much more strict, mm. um, we've seen much less installations. I mean, the UK, we've seen, we've seen no offshore wind for the first time uh, in a long time, mm -hmm. um, and while that probably we will start to bounce back, it is yeah a pretty disastrous course. We've got no wind capacity coming mm -hmm. online. Yeah. Um, obviously, the one saving grace there was 
was offshore wind and offshore wind through default has been um, much more resilient than onshore wind purely due to the fact that I think the capital investment is so much higher for offshore wind that the sort of necessity behind actually getting the project done on time um, is much more strict. Um, so actually offshore wind accounts for nearly 20% of global installations, which just shows how quickly it's taking off. Okay. Um, I mean, we're seeing new markets, we saw new markets come into the fray like Portugal, uh, South Korea actually tripled their capacity, uh, Belgium as well, there's still quite a lot this, this quarter. Um, but yeah, a lot going on. I mean, I think offshore wind has been a sort of poster child for the last five years as, as, as um, onshore um, was was slowed down by people who didn't want it in their backyard. Um, and, and we've seen that in you know, places like Germany and the UK um, and some other highly concentrated sort of Western democracies. But re really, um, and that that's means the technology's moved on. But I, I think we've un, it's the fact that there's been no development in onshore. And so onshore will accelerate again. Um, it's just that offshore has now been triggered. You know, it's, people have spent five years talking up as the big new renewable um, frontier. And I think it, it is that now, finally. But America, you can see how America is slowing down and slowing down its offshore permissions and how it's, it's but, but you know, we see other people going back to onshore and doing more with it. And America has the same problem. It's such a big place that it's the transmission that's, uh, that's the problem, uh, putting transmission where there is wind. And uh, how much is the transmission technology changing? Because I seem to remember seeing something about how these high voltage lines are like they exist now that you can do them like you couldn't in, a, a few years ago. So will Australia be um, taking advantage of that in a few years? And just having a huge transmission network? Well, essentially, these, the high voltage transmission lines have a lower loss rate, so you lose ele less electricity, but they are more expensive. Hmm. Um, at the moment, they only become sort of economically viable or economically beneficial at projects that are around 100 kilometres offshore. Um, but obviously, as they become cheaper and cheaper, that gets closer and closer in. And as offshore wind projects start to move further and further offshore, it both sort of points towards HVDC especially when you've got these sort of offshore wind hubs that we're getting proposed in like the North Sea, which will be um, quite far from shore. So There will be these supergrids that are built up over time that around China uh, and all of its neighbours, around Europe, uh, in, in the sea and, and on the land, where you have these fast uh, freeways of uh, electricity in uh, high voltage direct current. In Australia, it's, it's yeah, some of that, but this some parts of the grid are just not connected to each other. It's such a big place that it's not economic to connect them to each other. So they're like multiple separate isolated mini grids. And uh, and so that's a different type of investment. It doesn't need the HVDC so much right now. It will to connect them all. But I mean, yes. we are talking about people um, um, exporting Australian solar to yeah. Singapore. Um, and that's a long way away, oh, but um, uh, but most of the need in Australia is to cover the land. Because the impression I got is that the export to Singapore won't happen because Singapore actually doesn't need more electricity right now, but technically it could be done. It's, it's in thought. the hands of investors right now. It's all about payback. Which, but um, I wouldn't say it wouldn't be done, and I don't believe it's because it doesn't or doesn't need energy. 
uh, it's all a matter of the government's attitude to um, energy security and whether they want it in the hands of one neighbour or they want it in the hands of a remote neighbour who ships them um, uh, a liquid, liquid natural gas halfway around the world uh, oh, yeah. at a price that keeps varying. You know, they, they have no no security of energy. It's, it's a matter of who, where they, who they choose to partner with. And different people will, different uh, regimes will be trying to, uh, you know, in Australia, it's probably politically the more acceptable place to get energy from because they know they're not going to fall out of it. But um, uh, all the prices are going to change dramatically. But and I think that that transmission line is several thousand kilometres, something like 3,000. So... Yeah. Does that mean, I mean, you've got this global hotspot for wind, offshore wind in, in the Taiwan Strait. Could you could you see, a? Um, I, I guess maybe you were mentioning that earlier with these supergrids. Would you see Japan connected to China or Taiwan or? Well, so that's, the, that's the thing about renewables is that, and renewables becoming more and more varied in terms of you've got offshore, you've got onshore, you've got solar, is that countries are theoretically being more able to become energy independent. Mm. And, and all countries in that part of the world are trying to reduce the level of imports. Um, I think it was really interesting in your story this week, Andrew, about Vietnam and how quickly their yeah. electricity demand is going to ramp up. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at what they're promising about sort of doubling their uh, domestic generation capacity every 10 years, that's something that is very speculative. So that electricity will have to come from somewhere. Um, the Taiwan Strait is a, a great resource. Um, but I don't know how much of that capacity is going to be able to service markets outside China and Taiwan. Hmm. There have been talks recently, and they hit the news, about the idea of, of a kind of uh, um, Asian supergrid. Um, naturally, China would come to dominate it, but it um, it wouldn't be... Um, uh, a, I, I doubt if it would be a bad thing for a lot of these smaller countries, because they have net imports, usually, and it, it's a way of controlling those and or at least having them when they need them but not using them if they don't need them uh, so it's, it becomes a marketplace um, that everyone can share in it China would dominate of course but that it doesn't mean that if they couldn't build enough wind farms they couldn't export some as well um, I think that's all we've got time for this week um, we'll follow these stories as we go and we'll be back with you again next week thank you